The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Well, EJ, we are back to the NFL making absolutely no sense. Jags beat the Bills. Broncos beat the Cowboys. I mean, favorites are losing left and right. Texted a buddy of mine that runs a sports book out in Vegas. That was their single best day of the entire season by far. The entire strip combined probably cleared tens of millions of dollars because nothing happened that was supposed to happen. Uh, but still, a highly entertaining week of football, so at least for neutral fans like us, uh, we got to enjoy a lot of, uh, honestly, surprisingly good football games this week. So uh, I'm pretty stoked to recap all of Week 9 and look ahead to Week 10. Before we get into all that, though, buddy, how are you doing, and uh, what are you drinking? I'm good. I think Vegas loves chaos, so they absolutely <laughs> love this week because there was a lot of chaos. And... Yeah, there were some surprisingly great games and some games that we thought that were going to be dogs that were, but not for the reasons we thought. So it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about those. Uh, some ups, some downs. We'll have some things that don't necessarily focus on football, like actual football plays, which I know all of you turn to us for uh, in terms of X's and O's and coaches and strategy and players, but we're going to go out a little bit outside that envelope this week. Um but it, regardless, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Ninkasi Slayer is out. This is one of my all-time favorite holiday beers. Ninkasi Brewing, Eugene, Oregon. Um, it is a great dark sort of Kolsch seasonal release. 7-2 by volume, so you don't want to be cutting them down left and right, or they'll cut you down. Um, seven two. Ooh, that's dangerous. This is winter that, beer. This that, is that's in that 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 realm where it's like it's light enough where you're gonna get in trouble, but it's heavy enough where you're gonna get in trouble. This is the classic. You know, one is good, two is plenty, three is all right. Let's go. Um, so yeah, no, one of my favorites. It's got a, a great. They call it a um and dark alt chocolate beer kind of thing it's not quite that dark it's very malty it's definitely winter beer winter is here uh i don't know about you probably being you know almost a couple thousand miles to the south of me but um sunset here is now at 440 and reducing Oof. yeah Oof. sunset at 440 p.m now so beer like this 
matches the sky more than half the day. Um, but it's great stuff. We've got a great week of football. I'm excited about it. Uh, we should tear the lid off this thing because it was bananas. Well, you did say it's dark alcohol season, so I got Basil Hayden Dark Rye, which is uh, an interesting blend of, I've never had it before, but I, I see rye mixed with port, and I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. That sounds appropriately fall-ish, so I'm breaking that out tonight. Um, I do want to thank, by the way, Matt, Connor, Axel, Dan, and Brian, who all joined the Patreon this week. Really appreciate your guys' support, and uh, you have also been entered into that drawing that we're going to announce the winner of later in the show for a free bootleg hoodie, the one that I'm wearing right now, in whatever size you want. So thank you for believing in our work. And uh, with that being said, let's get into three up number one, which is the Broncos upsetting the Dallas Cowboys, one of the weirdest games I think I saw all week. And I actually charted every single snap of the Cowboys offense in this game because I'm working on it for a film room that's coming out Thursday morning. And, you know, I I, I thought I was going to see something crazy schematically. Like, I I thought I was going to see some weird new thing that Vic Fangio busted out for this game out of desperation. (laughs) And nope, it was... Single high man coverage, single high man coverage, single high man coverage. <laughs> oh, okay, they ran a fire zone here. All right, single high man coverage. Uh, let's play quarters on third and 20, and then we're going right back to man. I mean, they ran man, which supposedly is supposed to be a death sentence against the Cowboys. With all their receiving talent and everything like that, they ran different variations of cover one, either cover one rat or or cover one cross, which is kind of like the new in vogue coverage for handling three by one looks they ran that basically until midway through the fourth quarter when the game was well out of reach and then they just started playing zone and it worked I mean they beat the hell out of them they were up like 30 to nothing Dallas couldn't move the ball and it it was honestly the worst game that I've seen Dak Prescott play maybe in his entire career like, it wasn't just the fact that Jonathan Cooper was was kicking the crap out of their tackles and the coverage was tight. Like, there were guys open. Kellen Moore actually had some really good play calls in this game that opened up guys for, at least by my count, three deep touchdowns that Dak just missed. Like, straight up missed. Did not see. Worst game he's played maybe of his entire career, and it was stunning to me. But uh, credit where credit's due, you know, Denver showed up to play and they, they kicked their ass. This was the everything goes right for Denver game on both sides of the ball. And the defense was lights out. You were talking about that. I'm a little surprised you thought Vic Fangio was going to bust out something new because I'm not sure Vic Fangio's busted out anything new for the past like decade. Um, he is a believer in his system, a strong believer in his system and and playing it the way he plays it and and very rarely sort of being bumped off that stance. They have the talent to play it in corners they just traded a corner we talked about that last week at the deadline they have a plethora of corners and there is the axiom don't play man if you can't play man well the broncos can play man and they did and they played it really well and they married it with a rush but it wasn't just the defense the offense that we've been talking about the offense we've been envisioning for the entire year also showed up and everybody made plays tim patrick was huge in this game teddy did what he needed to it was this game was flat out running back porn. If you like running backs, you had Zeke and Pollard 
on the Cowboys side and you had Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon, who carried more of the load, had more carries. Um, I think Javante was a little bit more dynamic. We'll talk about that in a bit. But you had four really solid NFL running backs in this game. Uh, and the Broncos were able to hit the passes that the Cowboys weren't. And so it's the everything goes right. The scheme, the offensive talent, the defensive talent, the rush marrying to coverage. Like, this is what the Broncos envisioned when they put that team together. They fired on all cylinders. The Cowboys were not able to match that. And you ended up with a game that was, yeah, in at the time that mattered, midway through the fourth, this was a 30-point blowout, right? Now, the end, the final score didn't look like that. Dallas dropped a couple touchdowns. It was late. They didn't matter. This was 30 to nothing in the fourth quarter. This was a shellacking. And it's this is what happens when you run into an NFL team and everything they've planned out for the last couple of years works on the same day. I also want to point out on that Cowboys defense, which played really, really well for the first six or seven weeks of the year, um, the top two corners in the league in terms of yardage given up are Trayvon Diggs and Anthony Brown. And we, we talked about this, what, three, four weeks ago <laughs> yeah, when they were, ago, yeah. still, they were still in the top three, but they were getting picks. They were also both in the top three in picks, and we're like, look, what's the line of demarcation? This is a question we asked. What's the line of demarcation when it's like, how many yards is worth the, the turnovers? Well, the turnovers stopped. They haven't, they haven't got any picks in the last couple games, but they're still giving up the yards. And now we're seeing... You know, Teddy Bridgewater and Tim Patrick put up 30 points with a, you know, a little side effort from Javante Williams beating the hell out of him on the ground. And and you're getting blown out by a Broncos team that, like, they're, they're good, but they're not a powerhouse. Like, this team should not have been up five possessions <laughs> in the fourth quarter. And so I think this was a gut check game. For the Cowboys, where they realize that, you know, they can't just walk into every single game and, and, and out-talent people. Because when they're not getting those extra possessions from those corners, but they're still giving up yards, all of a sudden they're put in a hole. And maybe their offense isn't good enough to make up for that bad of a defense. Like, it's, it's honestly kind of the same uh, problem that Kansas City's having, where maybe the offense isn't isn't good enough to make up for a bad defense all the time, at least, without getting those extra possessions. So I do think it's a gut-check game for the Cowboys. They absolutely have some stuff they need to reevaluate defensively and offensively. For Dak, I I don't even know what he's supposed to take away from this game because, I mean, the pick he threw, like, it was just bad. Like, it was, it was one cross, so you had the safety come down, pick up the cross from number three, and then the, the the DB that was on number three then just took over his place as the robber in the middle and just floated under the dig, and Dak never saw him. Which, this is a very common coverage in the league, by the way. Like, Burrow threw a pick on it uh, against Cleveland this week as well. You know, where Denzel Ward popped up the ball against Jamar Chase, and the robber was right there in the middle of the field to pick it off. It's not an exotic coverage, but Dak just wasn't seeing the field well so yeah I don't want to I don't want to call it a trap game because maybe that's a little bit disrespectful to the Broncos like they are a very talented team overall but this should not 
have been that easy for Denver, and it just felt just felt easy for them. Yeah, I think it's a balance piece, and I think all good teams have a game like this, and the Cowboys are a good team, very good team. We've seen what they can do when they're hitting on all cylinders, but the NFL has a way of doing this, has a way of setting you back a pace when you think you're rolling, and you roll in, and again, you said it, they didn't Vic didn't roll out anything. Vic is not one of those guys that plants seeds in the preseason and then six weeks later, like Cliff Kingsbury runs a variation and says, ha ha, gotcha. Nope. Mm -hmm. Vic rolls up to the table and says, you know what's coming, right? It's the same stuff I've been doing. We're just going to do it well. And when they do it really well, you end up seeing this result. And that's maybe in a good way. If you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, a sort of silver lining out of this game is, There's probably not a lot for Dak to take away. This might be one of the classic sort of wipe the whiteboard games, right? Just we're not going to watch film. You know you screwed up. We're going to go back to the week before, see what you were doing right, try and get back in that groove because that was obviously where we were finding success. But it's not because they got surprised. It's not because it was exotic or different or, you know, Vic pulled something out of his back pocket. They got exactly what they expected. They just got a very good version of it. And they got thrashed. They didn't They didn't get beat or, you know, the officials didn't decide this one. Like the Broncos soundly grabbed them and thrashed them and then let off a little bit in the fourth quarter when it was well and truly over. So, you know, there are, I think there are good takeaways from both teams. The Dallas takeaway is we're never looking at this again. We're going to go out and try and execute. The Broncos takeaway is, see, that's what it can work like. Right. We if we can do that, we're going to be a force, especially since our major division rival is also having plenty of struggles in their own right. It's an opportunity for the Broncos to start a role and hopefully a wake up call for Denver or sorry, for Dallas to sort of reset and get back on the track that was was a winning track for them. By the way, I do want to give uh, one shout out to Jonathan Cooper before we move on to three up number two. (laughs) Second among all rookies and top eight in the entire league in pressures over the last three weeks when he finally started getting a lot of playing time. Vaughn got hurt and then Vaughn got traded. Jonathan Cooper's gotten pretty much all the snaps since then uh, as their weak side edge rusher. And he dominated, like absolutely dominated this game. Speed to power, a beautiful chop. I mean, just violent chop straight out of the Larry Johnson school of ass kicking over at Ohio State. I liked him a lot coming out. I think I had him in my tier three of edge rushers in my final position rankings, if I remember correctly, and that was when he was 280. And then he dropped weight down to 255 to become a true stand-up edge. And I was kind of wondering how that was going to work because I'm so used to seeing him as like that Michael Bennett hybrid inside-outside kind of guy. Uh, but it worked. He he's looked phenomenal. And for a seventh-round pick, rookie to be tied with Miles Garrett, first overall pick, defensive player of the year front runner over the last three weeks in pressures, that's saying a lot. So uh, well done to the Broncos front office for managing to snag him in the seventh round, which even during our draft stream, when he got taken, we were like, there's no way he should be there, but he was. Um, that's <laughs> a value for them. It's a great testament to team building, and he has morphed. We see guys that do this. I think about Epinesa and Buffalo, right, come in as one archetype and switch cooper's been tremendously successful in that another guy 
that's also a linebacker. It's uh, also from Ohio State. Baron Browning played in this game and got a PBU. Yeah. PBU was, uh, you know, on the other side, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up Micah Parsons doing everything covering Jerry Judy one on one. Like Dallas mm-hmm. is comfortable going, hey, go take that wide receiver that was taken in the first round one on one, Mr. Linebacker, and we're going to win that rep. And the answer is, yeah, we're going to win that rep. It's a period, not a question mark. So, bunch of guys in this game that really. You know, you start to see this at this point of the season, rookies who are acclimating. Uh, there's some attrition. People are getting reps. Um, Cooper's situation reminds me very much of DPJ in Cleveland. There were two guys this week mm. in the NFL that were really happy that the guys ahead of them left and they started to get more targets. You talk about Von Miller moving on. Cooper gets those reps and is doing amazing with them. OBJ moves on from Cleveland and DPJ sort of starts to pay off all that preseason goodness where everybody was like oh man uh we love dpj it was it was more of a targets and share thing he obviously has the physical ability and you just start to see guys about this time of year really blossom with those opportunities whether it's attrition or trades or whatever else and it's so fun to see those guys kind of take almost like a mid-year jump they've been doing it but just at a quieter level and now middle of the season we're just turning the volume up and seeing some of these guys really ascend and go, man, that was that was a great pick. You know who the only rookie ahead of Cooper in pressures the last three weeks is? If you had to guess. First no, rounder. Parsons? Quiddy Pay. Oh, yeah, Qu- yeah, yeah. Quietly. I quietly. I knew that. Quiddy's having a good year. Quiddy? Seems like nobody's talking about him, but he's having a good year. Um. Well, I think the... I think there's a bit of a reason for that. Colts defense is not where it was last year. They've had some injuries, but last year the Colts defense started off as this, oh my God, kind of threshing machine, (laughs) especially the defensive line was just bringing pressure in spades. And that always brings attention, whether or not the team's doing well, uh, because other teams come in. And especially, I think this is a bit of an offshoot of the, the fantasy landscape, right? Like, oh, my fantasy guy had to go up against the Colts this week and he got nothing. Like, wow, yeah. the defense is really good. They didn't quite start off gangbusters like that, but Quiddy's been having a really good year. Uh, you know, again, if you're going to bet on edge rushers, bet on wildly athletic ones, and Quiddy Pay was that and more. Um, what was his three cone like six four something like, just something stupidly low unruly for a guy of his size <laughs> i'll put it yeah. i'll put it that way but he's been having a great year and again he can platoon in that system uh he's gonna he's got guys that can take some pressure off him and uh deo's coming back he's back on the field getting reps too so starting to see some firepower yeah um, coming off an achilles right yeah so there wasn't yeah. any guarantee he was going to come back mid-season came back two weeks ago got his first couple snaps had a couple more snaps last week um that's you're going to start to see that choice by the colts which at the time was like okay you're going to take two basically edge or d-line players in the first two picks are all right that's you know maybe not the way i see your team needs aligning but chris ballard is going to do things his way and we're going to start to again mid-season on we're going to start to see that down the stretch really come into hopefully how they imagined it much like the broncos imagined their ideal selections fitting together it's always fun when you get to see that plan and then the team executes that plan and it starts to come together and you have a game like this on the field where they just blow somebody off the ball Got to say one thing before we move on. Mm. The red stripe 
on the Cowboys helmets. I don't know how you feel about it. I think it's elite. It looks so good. I know Cowboys I fans are going to hate it. So, you know, typically white stripe down the middle, dark blue stripes on the sides. They replaced one of the dark blue stripes with a red stripe. So it's red, white, and blue. I, Ooh, I actually love that. It's I'm looking at so it right now. good looking. It looks like the old Mustang logo. Like I, it, there was something about that aesthetic when I turned the game on. And I know Cowboys fans are going to hate it and think it's bad luck because they had a very good team role in the Denver and get smushed wearing that color. But it, I got to say, just that's our uniform note of the week was, holy cow, did that look sharp. I thought it was amazing. Apparently it's a throwback to 1976, back in the back in the Staubach days. Uh, but shit, that is really nice. I loved it. It was so. It's such a little thing, but I tune in and I was like, "Wait, what?" And then I, you know, yeah. I saw it and I was like, "Oh man, that looks good. It's clean. It's Super really clean. nice." So there we go. Um, speaking of random AFC South uh, rants and ramblings, uh, let's go to three up number two which is Jeffrey Simmons and the Titans defense absolutely blowing the doors off Matthew Stafford. Um, And I I felt like Matt just couldn't do anything right in the first half of this game. He was under pressure constantly. The entire Rams offensive line could not handle Jeffrey Simmons. He got whatever he wanted, dominating against the run, dominating against a pass rusher, got like three sacks in the first half. Kevin Byard had a pick six, which was... I mean, pristine when you look at how he baited Stafford because they showed like he was taking the tight end in a in kind of a compressed quarters look. And so Stafford thought that he was going to be in quasi-man coverage on the tight end. And uh, and Bayer just snuck underneath it as like a robber in a zone and, and just took it back for six. And I remember looking at the pre-snap look during the replay, and I was like, I totally understand why Stafford threw that ball? Because it was a, a safety at a 10-yard depth, capping on the tight end. Like, nine times out of 10, that speed out should be there. But Bayard's like, no, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to fool you. So, hell of a performance by the Titans defense, both in terms of physical domination and just mental sneakiness. Uh, very, very good job by them. And then the Titans offense wasn't, really anything special i mean ryan Tannehill only threw one ball over 15 yards past the line of scrimmage and jalen ramsey picked it off but other than that one misstep with the interception they did just enough to to capitalize on those turnovers capitalize on the defense uh you know giving them constantly good field position and you know maybe the score wasn't as indicative of of how good the rams defense played but in the end, points are what matters, and the Titans just kick the shit out of them. Yeah, this is, again is uh, a team starting to work in the image of how their brain trust put it together, and and Mike Vrabel put this team together to be the big heavy guys that kick the crap out of people. That is mm-hmm. that is his image. That is his mold. That is his mindset. You're not gonna be a Titan especially on defense, if you are not going to be bigger, stronger, and nastier than the other guy. And that came to play against the Rams. Rams are a very talented football team. They're plenty nasty in their own right and physical. I'm not calling the Rams soft. I'm saying the Titans are built to be bullies, and they bullied people. 
And it was fun to watch because I've been a big Jeffrey Simmons fan for the last three years. He's been playing extremely well and somewhat quietly. He isn't mentioned in those elite interior defensive line conversations often enough because he's been doing this. This is not some ascension by Jeffrey Simmons. Like he had a game. Don't get me wrong. But this is the kind of thing he can do. I put out a tweet that said the Rams are figuring out what it's like to play against Aaron Donald this week by playing against Jeffrey Simmons because he looks like Donald. He's having that kind of impact. I also want to talk about his running mate, Danico Autry, play oh, yeah. the <laughs> fucking lights out. He was a force in this game in multiple alignments, in multiple roles. He won every which way. And again, Simmons got more of the praise. But if you go back and watch that film, Danico, it's like it's like two hammers going off alternately. Like Simmons making a play, Autry blowing something up. Simmons makes the next play. Autry blows up the next one. And the Rams just never got on balance because of that absolute hammering. I was going to make the joke earlier when you said Kevin Byard of saying who? Uh you know, hardcore football fans will understand that joke. Uh, there was a very prominent national analyst who went toe to toe with Kevin Byard before realizing he was actually uh, a Pro Bowl safety, an, an All Pro at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, no, Byard had a very good game as he does. He again is fairly quiet when you talk about great safety play. Um, you know, Titans defense had a down year last year. We predicted a rebound to mean sort of not a regression, but an upward regression, if you want to call it that, a, a return to their defensive physical dominance. And I think we saw that against the Rams. And when that works, it is very difficult. And that is a good thing to have down the stretch as it gets colder, as you're playing games outside, as as passing games might be affected a little bit more by the field, by the wind, by rain, whatever, having a big dominating bullying defense comes into play more later in the season Vrabel is a guy with a lot of postseason experience as a player and as a coach now he understands that that hey maybe we're going to get whipped around on you know 80 degree field turf in September but come December when we're on some muddy grass and we're playing you know Cleveland um, we're we're built for this we're good to go what's crazy you bring up Simmons and Autry Harold Landry had five more pressures and another sack in this game. He's second in the league among edge rushers in total pressures. He's got 10 sacks in nine games. He's on pace for like 18, 19 sacks this year, which is insane. He was still third on the team in pressures and sacks. Like that's how much this Titans defensive front dominated them is you have a defensive player of the year candidate who was third fiddle on his own defensive line. It was one of the most disgusting performances by a front that I've seen this entire year. There was nothing that Matt Stafford could do. Like, yeah, the 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 pick six was bad, but let's give Bayard his due. Like, that was really more of a great defensive play by Bayard, a great read, a great bait than anything from Stafford. Um, we could talk about the, the, the pick thrown out of the end zone that, you know, might not have even been a safety if he just ate it. There was really nothing he could do in this game. He was under duress so much. He had some really crucial drops from his receivers. Some of the few times that he actually was upright. This was a showcase for that Titans defensive line and uh, couldn't be happier for him because I think when you look at the Titans over the last month, honestly, over the last six weeks, they played like six playoff teams in a (laughs) row. 
and they're the number one seed in the AFC, and Derrick Henry wasn't even on the field. Taylor Luan wasn't even on the field. Julio's banged up. Like They're somehow still winning games. Now, do I think they're the favorite in the conference? That's tough for me to say because, again, offensively, they did not have a good night. Ryan Tannehill was unable to throw deep. The running game was virtually non-existent. Like Adrian Peterson looked 35. McNichols is certainly not Derrick Henry. And quite frankly, the deep passing game is not there like it used to be. So even though they're the number one seed, do I consider them the AFC favorite, even though they keep somehow ripping off these wins? It's tough for me to back that considering the state of their offensive line and the state of their offense in general without Derrick Henry. But if the defense is playing like this and they get Derrick Henry back and Taylor Luan gets back healthy and he plays like he used to play, yeah, sign me up for them as Super Bowl contenders. Right now, they're in a great commanding position to survive their injuries, but in order to get through January, they need to get those guys back because I think it's going to be it's going to be really tough for them to finish the job if they don't get those guys back. You have to look no further than last year, right? The Titans roll into the playoff with Derrick Henry, who was healthy. Nobody's really healthy at that point in the NFL season, but tired, and he looked it, and he sputtered. And they didn't adjust, and they lost that game. That's the game that knocked them out of the playoffs, right? So you need offense. As much as I'm saying a big, brutish defense is really good late in the playoffs, it is, but you do have to pair it. That's the the team nature of football is you can't just have a big, brutish defense and roll that to the Super Bowl in the modern NFL. It's not going to work. And the combination of having Arthur Smith move on to the Falcons, who are starting to look more like an Arthur Smith-coached offense— and not quite gelling, even though they added talent. Uh, they have more receiving talent than they did last year. Henry being out, but also just they haven't had really dominant offensive performances. You and I saw this team in week one, and we talked a lot about week one, and we weren't really sure that what we were seeing was true, but it, it's kind of that game against Seattle was a microcosm, right? They didn't play well in the first half. They gave up a lot of deep shots. Wilson had his moon balls to lock it, and everybody at Lumen Field got excited. And then in the second half, they adjusted. They tightened up on the offensive side. They started pounding Derrick Henry, and the defensive side largely shut Seattle down. Seattle didn't have any answers for the Titans' defense. That's what allowed them to come back. And we kind of went, huh, it's week one. Is that really how it's going to be? And as this season's progressed, it's looked more and more like that, that defense dialing in, starting to ascend and get everybody working on the same page again getting closer to the way they played two years ago not last year because last year was a down year for them and they're like you said i love what you said about they're in a really good position to survive their injuries they're in a sort of armored up state that it's going to be very difficult to score a lot of points against them and they're going to have to eke out enough on their side to win but that's a good way to basically keep yourself in games in the middle part of the season hope to load up and then maybe fine-tune that offense for the playoff run, and then eventually a shot at the Super Bowl if they can get there. But interesting team, and playing with power right now. They are. I don't think anybody wants to see the Titans come up on their schedule right now because you know you're going to spend you know, probably Sunday night and maybe Monday morning in the cold tub because it's going to be a war. 
I would be very intrigued to see a rematch between the Titans and the Cardinals right now. They played each other week one, by the way. You and I watched that game from the Caesars Sportsbook. Cardinals kicked the crap out of them. Halfway through the year, they're both the number one seats in their respective conferences. But those Titans are not these Titans, and those Cardinals are not these Cardinals, because a lot of dudes have gotten hurt on both teams since then. I'd be very intrigued to see a rematch between them, and who knows, maybe we'll get it because they're both in prime position to make Super Bowl runs. But if you told me week one that that was going to be a matchup between two top conference seeds going into week 10, I'd be like, no way. But here we are. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to bet on it. And I said week one. It was week two that we saw the Titans at the Seahawks. Um, and, yeah, the, a lot of ch- <laughs> there's been a lot of changes in the law. Now, there's, both of these teams have shifted due to injury and circumstance, but I – yeah, I'd I'd pay folding money for a seat at that game. It would be entertaining. Let's go to three up number three, which is something near and dear to both of our hearts, and that is Justin Fields, Matt Nagy or no Matt Nagy, just played the game of his life against a very good Pittsburgh Steelers defense on the road in prime time. This was, it's not the first time that I think we've seen the flashes of like, yeah, this dude can play. But I think it's the first time that over the course of an entire game, we saw everything that we think he can be. The mobility, the pocket presence, the deep ball ability in particular. Like people don't realize this, but since week four, which was the game after that Cleveland game. So this was his second start uh onward until now so the last what six seven games he is tied for the league lead in big time throws over 20 plus yards tied with kyler murray and joe burrow specifically who are both fringe mvp candidates right now that's pretty insane and when you consider that that two of the four deep interceptions that he's thrown or because of a coach that shall remain nameless uh, saying in his ear that you know he was catching him with 12 on the field and he had a free play, and so he chucked it up and it got picked off. Apparently that happened two weeks in a row. Uh, he had a touchdown that went through Allen Robinson's hands. He had another pick off a deflection. Like Very easily could have been not just the most efficient deep ball passer, but one of the most productive deep ball passers in the league. And he's a rookie in a not very well-structured offense with not a good offensive line (laughs) with a receiving core that's been very hit or miss with Dave Montgomery not even there with Khalil Mack not even anchoring the defense the last two weeks it's pretty insane everything that he's had to go through adversity wise and for him to still be at the top of the league with names like Kyler Murray and Joe Burrow in some very encouraging metrics I think the Bears have something here I'm not saying it's all perfect. I'm not saying it's all perfect, but we're seeing the flashes. That throw to Jimmy Graham, which was just a dime. Uh, the bomb to Mooney. The bomb to Goodwin. The fade to Robinson. Like, there were so many throws in this game that were among the best throws of the entire week, and they were all from Justin Fields in one game. There's something there, EJ. There's something there. Yeah, it's not maybe anymore. The maybe was the flashes we've seen even when he was getting blasted in under two seconds uh, on a regular basis. He's still 
rolled out. We saw last week, completely broken play, scrambled to ram for touchdown. I don't know that that surprised people who've watched Justin Fields, but you're right about the completeness of the game. And last night, watching that game, I had serious flashbacks to uh, another guy that's gone on to to win a Super Bowl, to, to be an MVP. That's Russell Wilson. And he started... For those that remember, in a somewhat surprising turn of events, Seahawks had just paid big money to free agent Matt Flynn. They drafted Russell Wilson in the third round. He, I don't want to say he'd been a journeyman. He'd been at NC State for a while. He went and played baseball. He ended up at Wisconsin for one season, got there late, took over, became a captain, led them to one of their most successful seasons. And, you know, but he couldn't really throw the deep ball. And that was kind of the knock on Russell Wilson. Great leader, great mobility, very tough. Good arm, but eh, not, a, not a great deep ball thrower. Hadn't been asked to do it a ton at Wisconsin. And he'd, he'd kind of put together the same first half of the season in his rookie season for the Seahawks. He'd been in some games. They hadn't won them. He certainly hadn't taken them over. You could see the progress. You could see the flashes of the deep ball, but he hadn't all put it together. And midway through his rookie season, he rolled into Soldier Field of all places, which the irony of that is not lost on me. Taking on a Bears team that still had Brian Urlacher on the field, and this actually was the game that ended Urlacher's career. Um, Russell Wilson kept them hanging around. Second half started to make some throws, bring the Seahawks back, put him into overtime with the Bears, and then won that game on the road, completing some really nice deep throws. And that was Wilson's coming out game, for me at least, where I said, okay, this is not only the guy <laughs> that can carry you forward and, and be your signal caller, but the guy that can win you some games that you're not supposed to win. And that's what you need when you say the Bears have something. That's what the Bears have not had in a very long time. And they have it in Justin Fields. He put it together last night. He put together all those deep throws. And you talk about all the deep throws he's completed and and the stats that count. You don't have to look any farther than the throw he missed to Mooney down the right sideline last night by about six inches to go, oh, what could it have been? Like, you want to talk about production? He missed Mooney by six inches, half the length of the football. That football went by Mooney's hands, Mooney's fingertips by this much. And didn't get him down. This is one of the things I liked the most about that demeanor. A lot of things went wrong last night. We'll talk later about the Bears' number of penalties, which was exceptional. We'll talk about all the craziness that went on with the officials. Game calling, still not perfect. Offensive line, far from perfect. Justin Fields, unflappable. I got it. I'm going to keep us in the game. Doesn't matter that that bad thing happened. Doesn't matter we missed the throw. Doesn't matter the call went against us. I'm going to come out here and throw darts. And that throw to Mooney that he missed by inches, literally inches, he looked at it and he was like, licked his lips. He's like, that's so damn close and you all know it, right? <laughs> I just I just missed a 50-yard bomb by six inches and I'm not going to miss it next time. And you're going to, like, all the upcoming DCs are going to look at that film and go, shit. <laughs> like, yeah. what do you do against a guy like that? And you, you were doing that once or twice or three times a game, even when it wasn't going well, they're going to look at last night's film and go, ah, oh, crap, I wish we got him early in the year because he's ascending. He is asserting himself. He is gaining confidence every week. He He's doing all the right things. Our friend Ted Wynn, who covers the Raiders and really all the NFL for the Athletic, uh, sent me a DM last night. It said, seem like each week he's doing a little bit better. He 
you know, when he's getting protection, when he has a second, he's doing all the things. And the answer is, yeah, he's doing all the things. And last night was the first game where he did them all. Hostile environment, on the road. They had no business being in that game late with all the things that went wrong. And they damn near won it. Like, there's a couple things we'll talk about. Again, I had largely written them off in the first half because they played a really uninspired first half. They played a terrible first half. They were down 14 points, and they looked lifeless. Nothing was working. It didn't feel like they had hope at any point. And then, okay, now you're within 10. Okay, and then, you know, you're driving again. Oh, it got got derailed. Uh, Normally, again, all season long, one play, one penalty, one missed opportunity has been been it the offense has not been able to overcome that despite that he was able to claw back yeah kept his head up kept throwing kept him in the and then here they are with a legitimate chance to win the game that you know you can say they should have could have would have they were right there and had a couple plays maybe even one play gone their way they wouldn't have been trying to kick uh you know 66 yard field goal or whatever it was at the end of the game so this, in my book, is Justin Fields' coming out moment. And from here on out, you better hope you got a plan. And you also better hope that the Bears don't continue to stack talent around him because if they do, he's going to win a lot of games. Let me put it to you this way. He was a Jimmy Graham drop, which we can say was a PBU. Let's be real. That was a drop yeah. on a fade in the end zone. And he was a bad call on a phantom low blocking penalty on James Daniels from throwing for 300 yards and three touchdowns on the road in Pittsburgh in primetime. They put up 20 offensive points on that Steelers defense, tied for the most out of any team that's played against Pittsburgh this year. And I've been to Hines for a night game. I have sat in those stands. I have heard how loud it is. I have heard how crazy it is. It's not easy to play there let alone for a rookie. I'm telling you, the Steelers escaped. They dodged a fucking bullet. Because if, if just a couple more things went the Bears' way that were not in their control, cough, cough, Tony Corrente. And you know what? Actually, let me, let me bring that up right now. Let's go to three down number one because that's, a, that's as good a transition we're going to get. Yep. Ref ball this week was atrocious. And that Bears game was the headliner. 21 penalties total in that game, tied for the most out of any game this week. 20 of them were accepted. The Bears had, what, 15 penalties called on them. 12 were accepted, but 15 penalties, including that phantom low block on James Daniels that took away a touchdown, including that egregious taunting call on Cassius Marsh where Tony Corrente was asked about it after the game and he said I felt he was moving towards the Pittsburgh bench in a posture that was taunting it's like you felt motherfucker you felt that was taunting you even acknowledged in your own statement he made a great game-changing play and you felt that that Pittsburgh deserved a first down because he looked at the bench from 30 yards away from the hashes that's the bit that kills me right like i'm across the neighborhood doing the old monty python i thumb my nose at you and you're gonna it was and you're gonna change the game because of that and ref ball is the term we're using not only for the chicago game not specifically for the chicago game 
we've largely stayed out of this conversation. We've talked about it a lot. We've chosen publicly to stay out of this conversation for the first half of the season. And this conversation is taunting for sure. We're going to talk about that specifically. Roughing the passer and the way it's changed and the way that it's called and not called, the consistency. We talked about this last night after the game. Coming up in sports, we both came up playing sports, and you were always told not to talk about the ref because nobody plays a perfect game. And if you want to focus on things, coaches, especially youth coaches, told us, fix your own mistakes, right? Don't miss the pass. Don't miss the block. Make it make it so one bad call from the ref because that is going to happen in all sports, right? This is not an NFL sole thing, right? It happens in baseball, strike zones. It happens in the NBA, you know, flopping. It happens in, you know, soccer around the world. It, every sport has this. Every ump, ref, judge, whatever is going to make mistakes. They're human and we were always told, take it out of their hands by making your own plays. Concentrate on your own business because you can't control them. We're past that. We're to the point where every week, one or several, many of these calls are affecting the outcome of games in what is, quite frankly, a multi-billion dollar industry, right? Multi-tens of billions of dollars, change hands based on the NFL. And I'm not just talking about gambling. I'm talking about ticket sales. I'm talking about concessions. I'm talking about the whole enterprise, TV revenue, everything. The core of it is the game on the field, right? All that advertising money, all that contract money, all the stadium money, everything else. It's all based on having a product on the field that people can believe in. And these calls that are made on air, now or in the case we're going to talk about pretty quickly fabricated right either it just didn't exist and they called it anyways or they caused it to happen and that is a line that officials haven't crossed officials have interjected themselves into the game and i know there'll be people out there that come at me in the mentions and say it's because of the league they're just following league directives they have all these videos and they're just calling it to the way the video goes maybe the case doesn't really matter this is a problem this is a rampant problem league-wide we're not just talking about last night's game but last night's game brought it into very clear focus because it's a national game it's the only game on everybody's looking at it and there were multiple calls both made and missed in that game that absolutely changed the outcome of the game there were all the penalties we talked about 21 penalties in that game there were at least five or six that were clearly not called the all 22 video of the final field goal, like Watts helmet is clearly over the ball. He's lined up in the neutral zone. Both yeah. teams struggle with that all night. There were multiple snaps on the TV angle where I went, wait a minute, where's the flag? That tackle stood up before they snapped the ball on both sides. Like both teams did this multiple times and they didn't call those. Now I understand swallowing the whistle. I understand letting them play. But either you call those things or you don't, and it's not on one team or another. There was an imbalance last night, but that's not what we're talking about. And then you get to the roughing the passer calls. Justin Fields got the shit kicked out of him last night. He got hit late after two steps. That's been a flag on every quarterback all year. You touch a quarterback? I mean, we saw it the night before with Aaron Donald pushing Ryan Tannehill with two hands in the chest as he threw the ball within the same half step. 15 yards 
Justin yeah. Fields releases the ball, stands there for two steps, gets whacked in the back of the head by a Steelers defender. No flag. You know, I'm not even talking about the Minka hit down near the sidelines. People said, oh, that's clean. He's a runner, right? You can hit him. You absolutely can hit him. I don't care who you are or who he is. You can't lead with your helmet. There was helmet-to-helmet contact before the sideline. Any other veteran quarterback, and I do say veteran very purposely, any other veteran quarterback, you hit him that close to the sideline, helmet-to-helmet, that's a flag, guaranteed. The, the threshold has been so low for touching quarterbacks, veteran quarterbacks, this entire season. And Fields took shot after shot after shot and got no flag. And it's not that I'm upset because I'm a Bears fan and it's Justin Fields. I'm upset because... And people called this out on Twitter. Well, and it's said, happened to Zach Wilson, too. Let's I know. Be real. Like, it's not just a Bears thing. It's nope. young quarterbacks are getting the shit beat out of them, and there's no flags. And you call it the same way. There should not be two sets of rules. That's what we're really talking about here. We're not talking about Justin or Zach or Trevor, right? And people people twisted this a bit in the mentions and came at me and said, oh, it's, because, it's just because he's a rookie, not because he's black. And I actually think, look, Justin Fields has suffered because he's an African-American quarterback. And we talked about that in the draft. The criticism that was leveled against him has been leveled against black quarterbacks for decades. And that was unfair. And it was because he's African-American. I don't think this has anything to do with this because Trevor's getting the hell pounded out of him. Zach Wilson was getting the hell pounded out of him. But you can't touch Ryan Tannehill. You can't go near Aaron Rodgers. Matt Russell Stafford. Wilson now these days. Russell, Russell, when he was young, did not get calls. Now no, he's he getting got- calls. And, and this is, again, this is not unique to the NFL. An NBA rookie is not getting the calls that, you know, Kobe was getting, LeBron was getting, that, you know, Giannis is now going to get as an ascending star, right? They're going to get calls. And it's the same in baseball, right? You have your rookie strike zone, and then you have your, hey, man, you've hit a couple of big dingers <laughs> strike zone, and then you have your, whoa, you're probably going to Cooperstown. You get whatever you want yeah. strike zone. A- Albert like, Albert Pujols has a different zone, I could tell you that much. As an Angels fan who watched Pujols for a decade, yeah, a lot different. And then Mike Trout, once he got his first you know, MVP, shit started getting called yeah, a no, little bit differently. And they call this that way. Either you have, if you're going to protect quarterbacks to this level, and I don't think that's bad. And look, it's the most important position in sports, and it's the one that drives this entire industry. Nobody wants to go into a week 13 game and see third stringer X versus guy we had to get off the practice squad because whatever. Like, and that happened every year in shorter seasons. It's a longer season now. If you want to preserve these guys, you got to say it, but just say it honestly. Say, look, you're not able to make contact with the quarterback anymore. You either, either we're going to make a two-hand touch for quarterbacks, which is fine in my opinion, because look, it's a long season. I like sacks as much as the next guy. See, see here's where I'll disagree, because I'm not okay with two-hand touch for quarterbacks. What I want is for, if that's how you're going to call it, call it. Like, I would prefer that quarterbacks are allowed to get lit the fuck up. And even Tom Brady himself has said that. Because he said that the only thing that can balance out skill is physicality. Tom Brady said that. He's like, look, we were more skilled than the Steelers back in the day. But when they could hit us, I wasn't going to throw over the middle on Troy. Like, I, when, when they were dropping James Harrison in his zone, guess what? Shallow cross is off the menu. And he's like, their physicality balanced out our skill, and that needs to be present in the game. That's Tom Brady saying that. 
I agree. You should be able to hit quarterbacks really hard. I'm not saying launch into them, spear them, hurt them. But if you're going to play two-hand touch as a rule, call it for everybody. Absolutely. Let's just, let's just say that's what the game is now. That's all I really want, and I, I know there'll be fans that disagree. I would like to see quarterbacks be able to be hit too, but the question is where and how and how high and how hard, and then it becomes a subjective thing. So if you're not going to let quarterbacks be subjected to that kind of punishment, it doesn't matter who plays quarterback. You call it the same way. If quarterbacks can't be hit, it's all quarterbacks. Rookies, journeymen, guy that you just grabbed off the practice squad gets the same call that Tom Brady gets. I realize that's not a reality in all sports. I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is we're going to take these rookies and subject them to beatings and then say they can get calls if they get good. Like, that's not a way to call a rule. So ref ball in general is taunting. I think it's weird. Twitter doesn't agree on anything, especially NFL Twitter. <laughs> Everybody yeah. hates taunting. I put together a thread of all the people just last night that were, again, lighting into taunting. Again, we've stayed quiet. It's time to talk about it. This is a problem that is affecting the outcome of games. And somebody said, I thought this was a really smart tweet in my mentions. Nobody's going to do anything about it until there is, you know, serious evidence of game fixing because that's when Congress and any trust is going to get into it and everything else. And somebody says, hey, 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 you're taking something that people bet millions and millions of dollars on and you're making the outcome non-random. You're influencing the outcome. And maybe that's what it takes. I don't know. I don't really care what it takes. What it takes is you've got something that's broken NFL. Tony Carranti and his team made some egregious calls last night. He literally initiated contact with the player as he was throwing a flag. He backed into him with his butt, then threw a flag. You can go back at the replay. It's not a perspective thing. He moved into the player to cause contact and then threw the flag immediately. That's a ref inserting themselves into the outcome of the game. And that's not supposed to happen. I, I I don't know who needs to hear this, but refs are not there for that purpose. They are not there to decide who wins and loses. They're there to decide who's played by the rules on each and individual play. This is and a by thing the way, that needs to get on that flag throw from Carenti, where he was got you know bumped into Marsh. He stared him down while he did it. He did the same thing that he just flagged Marsh for. So it's like. Dude, you just fucking taunted him while you threw the flag by your own definition. Now, if you go back and watch the replay, and we'll we'll try and put a video of it in or link it in the comments, literally, Carenti puts his hand on the flag, Marsh walks by him, he looks at him, sticks his butt into him, makes contact, looks right at him, and chucks the flag that he grabbed before he backed into him. Like, it's not a perspective thing. It's very clear that the contact was initiated by the official. That's... That's disturbing. You add that to the phantom call on James Daniels that even the like the broadcasters last night, the, the Monday night team was trying very hard not to light up the league. And, and for obvious reasons, they have a very strong professional relationship with them. But all three of them openly said that's that's not a thing. Their expert official who they employ to interpret rule decisions came on and said, I don't know what they're doing. Like I, I there's, that's not something I would call. He flat out said, so we're in this weird place where, you know, not only did they make 
terrible calls, insert themselves into the game and the outcome, but they also missed a whole lot of calls on both sides. Neutral zone infractions, false starts were two of the most egregious that happened over and over again, and they didn't call those. So what you have is this incredibly inconsistent result where there's always been plays where officials made calls and everybody talked about it around the water cooler back when we all used to work in offices and we talked around the water cooler, right? Oh, that was a bad call. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. That one game, that one call, right? And now it's like, well, these five came, these five calls from this game, these three calls from this game. And did you see the one at the end that kept the team from getting the field goal? Like what in the world? It's, it's rampant. It's all over the place and it's really not great. And the NFL, they love to put emphasis on things. They got to put some emphasis on getting it right and getting the officials out of deciding the outcome of games. Oh, I don't know if it's going to get better this season, but I think the amount of exposure, negative exposure, that the league is taking right now in a season full of negative exposure for the league, I, I would not be surprised if this ends up like one of the many different things over the years that has been a quote-unquote point of emphasis that as the season goes on gets phased out when the league realizes, oh, this is not good for ratings, which is therefore not good for money. And if the league cares about one thing more than anything else, it's money. If this even shows a slight possibility, if there, if there is a 1% chance that the public reaction to this taunting rule will affect their pocketbook, they will treat it as an absolute certainty, and stuff will change. So the one silver lining about this game is that it was so awful that it might actually help the rest of the season. We'll see. If Tony Corrente, uh, you know, suddenly disappears and is in a gulag in Siberia, we'll know it, it helped. Um, three down number two, something almost as bad as the officiating across the league this week. The 49ers. I feel like they're on three down every single week at this point. <laughs> They lost to a practice squad, or at least damn near it. The Cardinals had no Kyler Murray, no DeAndre Hopkins, no J.J. Watt, no A.J. Green. Garcia got hurt middle game. Edmonds got hurt in like the first drive. He was out. Justin Pugh got hurt with a calf injury. Saving Collins is banged up. I mean, the list goes on and on. So many impact players for this team on both sides of the ball. Either didn't play or got hurt, and they still destroyed a mostly fully operational 49ers roster. Colt McCoy went 22 of 26 for 250 at a touchdown. They put up twice as many points as they did the last time they played him with Kyler Murray. It was it was a complete coaching failure. Like, I love James Conner. James Conner's not supposed to put up almost 200 yards and three touchdowns on you when you just held them to 17 like four weeks ago. I feel like they have a coaching problem. I saw one tweet that pulled this into strong focus, and we you're right. Shanahan's record is under more scrutiny than it has been for a long time and with, I think, brighter lights, right, a finer focus, because this is a very talented team. They are not short on talent. And someone said 2019 is being treated as the mean, right, as the average, and it wasn't. It was the exception. And they're not wrong. So Kyle Shanahan's records with the 49ers, and I know you could say wins, you know, W-I-N-Z, wins, coach wins are not a stat. 
Well, they are after a while, and we have five seasons worth of data. 2017, 6 and 10. Not a bad season, especially for the team he took over. 2018, 4 and 12. Okay, still rebuilding, getting his guys in, some injuries. 2019, the shining moment in the sun. 13 and 3, first in the NFC West, lost Kansas City in the Super Bowl. The peak of the mountain, quite literally. It goes like this, and then it goes back down. 2020, 6 and 10. Fourth in the NFC West, tons of injuries. I got it. 2021, three and five. Right? So we have on, on six pace wins. for six and ten. <laughs> yeah, so we have six yeah. and ten, four and twelve, six and ten, currently three and five. And not looking like that's gonna turn around, like, oh, they've had so many, you know, hair trigger losses that, you know, if they'd kicked a field goal here, they'd be no, no, they really haven't played very inspired football and most of their losses have been earned so again we have the one year in 2019 where it was awesome 13 and 3 magical season end up in the super bowl lose it but great season right but everything around that two seasons on both sides we're now into the fifth season of the kyle shanahan experience six and ten four and twelve six and ten on pace for six and ten people started to make jokes about a former rams coach who had a very similar record but it was actually better yeah right you know fisher's record was better than what kyle shanahan has been putting up and i think if you said that out loud a couple of years ago you had been laughed out of the building and maybe maybe rightfully so but right now facts is facts like kyle shanahan for whatever reason is not getting the most out of what is a talented team and that's concerning it's i'm sure it's concerning the 49ers it's definitely concerning to their fans and it's concerning to us who have looked at his designs, especially his run designs. Um, and, you know, some of the defensive performances have been really cool. Overall, you have to look at the overall. That's the title, head coach in charge of the on-field product. And the on-field product for the 49ers has not matched up to the talent that John Lynch has assembled on the sidelines. I just, I can't, I cannot understand why Trey Lance hasn't taken a snap since week five, even as a package player, when they spent all offseason telling us we're going to have a Trey Lance package. He's going to give a dynamic element to our running game, and he can also throw. I do not understand why he hasn't seen the field in over a month. You have Jimmy Garoppolo throwing 40 times, still throwing egregious interceptions, can't stretch the field, you know, we, we've talked before about how guys like Brandon Ayuk just go entire weeks without getting used. And they're finally starting to use in the last couple weeks because Debo's not 100% with his calf injury. And, of course, he was productive. He had, what, six for 89 and a touchdown because they finally threw him the fucking ball. It's like you could have been doing that all year. Like, Brandon Ayuk's always been the most talented receiver on the team. That is nothing against Debo. We love Debo. But Debo doesn't have the field-stretching ability that Ayuk has. He doesn't have the the catch radius that Ayuk has. Like, he ha- obviously is, is great after the catch, and you can line him up all over the field. But, like, Ayuk, as a true outside receiver, is a better talent than Debo. And they weren't using him. And I just... I don't understand the personnel mismanagement when you have, you know, Eli Mitchell getting basically all the carries 
and he's got a rib injury. When you have a perfectly healthy Trey Sermon that you just drafted in the third round that you can give the ball to, and you'd rather give it to a guy that's hurt? I I just... Something's wrong here. And it's not just one thing. It's, it's everything. It's like once all the assistants got poached from this team, everything ceased to function. Like Robert Sala has more banner wins this year than the 49ers do. Because they beat the Titans. He beat the Bengals. They were both top of the conference. Titans are the top of the conference right now. Sala beat them. So it's like, we're, was it kind of a situation where we feel like the Cowboys are now, where it's like the coordinators are really what mattered, not the head coach? What, what Was Shanahan and Mike McCarthy all along and we didn't even know it? It's just crazy to me. And, and maybe it's because Shanahan was such a good offensive coordinator for a long time in Houston, in Atlanta, and, you know, went to a Super Bowl there, went to another, another Super Bowl. Like, I don't know, maybe we just perceived his ability as an offensive coordinator like it would just automatically translate as a head coach but it's not like the team looks flat every single week the personnel mismanagement is blatant every single week and without his most trusted assistants which have now got poached by other organizations the team sucks it just sucks like the, I, I, and again I don't I don't find it enjoyable to say this because going into the year, I picked the Niners to win the division. But they suck. And there's nothing There's nothing else I could say about it. They're just bad in almost every facet. You don't lose to a bunch of teams' backups without being bad in every single phase of the game. And they were. Yeah, I just had a flash and I don't like it. <laughs> you know who it reminds me of in terms of the offensive coordinator to head coach, and in, in this particular case that I'm thinking of, then back to offensive coordinator, because that's where the Nagy? shine. No, no, it's an older Ooh. example than that. Norv Turner. That's not bad as a comp, because yeah, Norv was a great OC. A great OC, which is what got him a head coaching job, and when he was a head coach, yeah, not, not great, right? Middle of the road, ended up losing that job. Or- even more recent, Josh McDaniels. Some dudes are just better as OCs. Yeah, yeah, I can see that as well. And and that's what I think maybe this is, is that the head job isn't particularly suited for him or he for it. I'm not sure which, but he is a damn good offensive coordinator. We have lots of things in the book that say when that's his only job, he is talented and he gets the most out of his players on the offensive side of the ball. And maybe that's what we need here is a return to, you know, Shanahan being deposed as the, the Niners head coach. And, and he goes on somewhere and joins on as an OC, uh, maybe for a younger head coach that's looking for, you know, again, a guy with some head coaching experience and, and a lot of offensive talent to maximize that in the role. And I could see that working and maybe that's the best thing because maybe that's his best life. Like maybe that's where he's going to have the greatest impact in the league. That's going to be his legacy as an offensive innovator and, and a guy that really got a lot of teams over the hump offensively. But as a head coach, like he's stumbling pretty badly. He's solidly sub 500. If you take out the one glorious year out of five, he's way sub 500. And 
And again, it doesn't feel like, oh, but wait till this one thing happens and then it'll turn. It doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like all the things aren't working right now. And there isn't one silver bullet that would make this better. Oh, well, you know, his his quarterback of the future is out. He's not even using his quarterback of the future. So it's not like, oh, this is development season. Wait for next year. Like, are you going to get anything different next year? And I don't think 49ers fans think or, or league watchers right now think that's the case i think they think they're going to get more of the same and that chorus is is building it's getting a lot louder this year i it's been kind of interesting to me to see like 49ers fans progressively get a little bit louder as the season goes on where they realize like and again i'm part of this chorus too because i again i picked them to win the division where we're all kind of like man did we get tricked like, are, 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 were we punked for, like, the last four years? Because we just kept making excuses. It's like, ah, well, Bosa's hurt. Ah, well, Kittle's hurt. Ah, Jimmy's limited. Wait till they get a new guy. Just as you said. And, like, we, we've always been making all these excuses. And then everything's there. And Kittle's back. And Bosa's healthy. And you're going against a backup quarterback. And they get fucking destroyed. And now what, we have nothing else. We have nothing else to fall back on. We have no arguments. We have no just wait till, as you said. And now you're just left with cold, hard reality of like, man, they really suck. Yeah, where's <laughs> where's the shift? I mean, if you're if you're a Niners fan and you're listening to this, I, I know it's hard not to despair. But the the question really is, what would need to shift if you were going to stay with the current setup to accelerate this team to a team that is competitive every week and i put out a tweet last night that said you know uh, when the bears hit the bomb to mooney uh in the first half i said that's a thing is like the bears will do this every once in a while and remind you that they are not bereft of talent that they do not this is not a bottom feeding talent roster it's not a great roster by any stretch i'm not saying that but they have enough talent to be competitive every week not that doesn't mean to win or roll over powerhouse teams it means they have enough talent to be competitive every week and the Niners easily have enough talent on both sides of the ball to be competitive every week and in this league that gets you into solid wild card contention you might not win your division but if you are competitive every week maximizing your talent that is enough and they have that talent, and they're not. And so what would need to change if you're going to stay with the current regime to make that happen? And 49ers fans have a lot of opinions about that, but I just don't see it. I don't see the one thing, the one player, the the one thing they have to call more in the scheme, the, the one coach they could elevate, whatever it is. I don't see the one thing that's suddenly going to turn this into a squad that is competitive every week because they're not right now, and they really should be. Speaking of um, despair and uh, <laughs> not understanding what's going wrong, three down number three this week. I think Chiefs fans, they're not in quite the same boat as 49ers fans, but I think they're pretty damn close where they're like, what's going on here? Because this offense has been among the bottom of the league in terms of points per game over the last, what, five, six weeks. You've got... Patrick Mahomes thrown for four and a half yards per attempt with with one touchdown, barely eking out 13 points against the Packers defense. 
it's rough out here. And the offensive line, I get it. They're not playing well. Weirdly enough, despite all of the investment in the offensive line, you spend a first-round pick on Orlando Brown. You get Lucas Niang back. Um, their their uh, pass protection efficiency on a per-snap basis is actually lower this year than at any other point in Mahomes' career, which is crazy. Like, the interior's been solid, but the tackles have really struggled. You know, Travis Kelsey's getting mugged virtually every single snap. Um, Seth Galina from PFF did a great piece kind of breaking down all of the different elements of, like, what's going on with this Chiefs offense. And it comes down to the tackles not playing well. Kelsey's getting mugged because he's pretty much their only option in terms of, like, beating man coverage and teams know it. They're seeing more quarters than any other team in the league. They're seeing a lot of one cross. They can't beat it. And they, it's just every single week they're they're going up against this brick wall and they haven't been able to find any adjustments, including the run game, that have been able to dig them out of this hole. After a few weeks, it seemed kind of worrisome. Now it just seems like a trend. And I don't know what the fix is. I really don't know what the problem and how they're going to get out of it. Yeah, Pat spoke to this directly in his press conference after the game and said we need to we need to you know this is what quarterbacks say when their team's losing right we need to get back to that swagger we need to get back to those things at work sometimes coaches will re-emphasize basics we need to get back to doing the basics kind of doesn't feel like that just feels like all the things that were connected and have been connected in kansas city for the past three seasons are not connected they are now disconnected and that result showing on the field and Sunday was really interesting because it's two fan bases as you said that have become very used to good quarterback play now the Mm -hmm. Packers have had good quarterback play for almost 30 years which is ridiculous like Hall of Fame quarterback to Hall of Fame quarterback it's very rare that that transition occurs it happened in Green Bay Uh, it's newer in Kansas City, it's really the last three seasons with Mahomes' ascension where they have come to rely on excellent quarterback play that can overcome almost anything. Ask any Chiefs fan from the last couple of years. They're like, I don't I don't care how much they're down, and I don't care how much time's left. It's Pat, right? If it's not three scores with one minute to go, I'm feeling okay. And that's, that's a little crazy, and this is falling back to earth on that one. So it's two fan bases that Aaron Rodgers was out, and Jordan Love was in. And the Packers got to see what they've had, not what they have, right? Jordan Love is a guy that's been in the system for a long time, should have presumably looked better than he did in live game action. He was not inspiring. And, oh, <laughs> Packers fans felt that. They were uh, quite vocal, and and this is what happens oh. When you take away the thing that you've had for a very long time and expect as a regular occurrence, which is not a regular occurrence for all the other franchises, but is for yours, it's your norm. I mean, think about it. There are Packers fans who are 25, 28 years old and have never known anything except for Hall of Fame quarterback play. And both Farm and Rodgers are incredibly durable. They've missed very few games. So literally every week, they expect the Packers to win because they've had a great quarterback at the helm. Now, for one week that gets removed the Packers get exposed a little bit as not having a tremendously balanced roster um again they have their superstars but Bakhtiari's out Devonta Adams has been limited Aaron Jones can't do it by, by himself and Jordan Love comes in and doesn't do Aaron Rodgers things again we just talked about coaches maximizing talent Aaron Rodgers is a quarterback that maximizes talent on your team 
that gets removed and what's left is oh this is what all the other teams have to do they have to like scheme stuff up and and work for their wins every week oh man this is no fun and the chiefs fans are like yeah welcome to our whole season right and the chiefs fans have been i i said last week eating themselves in the mentions because they were so used to this newfound success and assumed as many of us did that it would just continue unabated until pat was ready to ride off into the sunset hopefully many years down the road this bump in the road happens to many great quarterbacks uh but it's been pretty serious and it's not just pat like pat is not playing well but the team isn't playing particularly well around him and the defense fell off a cliff at the same time. So the result has been what you've seen on the field, which is a lot of uncertainty, never walking into a game feeling like we're favored or we can win this or we should win this. And that's a new place, uh, certainly within the last three or four years for Chiefs fans to be. And the Chiefs in Green Bay meeting up last Sunday was kind of like the Spider-Man meme, both pointing at each other, right? Like, <laughs> are you having trouble at quarterback? Yeah, we're having trouble at quarterback. Are you? Oh, yeah, this is terrible. Yeah, this is terrible. Um so I put, you know, loves versus Mahomes in a battle in quotes, because, again, if I would told you at the beginning of the season that, hey, midseason, you know, when the, when the Packers play the Chiefs, like Patrick Mahomes is going to play Jordan Love. And I'm not sure who should be favored. You would have gone. Wait, say that again. Like what? And you could argue that Jordan Love played better than Mahomes. It's not hard to do. And they were both bad. Yeah, they're That's both the terrible. Thing. So it's a very odd thing that, again, this is why we watch the NFL, because parody is rampant, because people that are on top, it's very hard to stay on top. The whole dynasty thing uh, was very much more 70s and 80s when roster rules were different and and player movement was controlled in a different way. Of, of late, nobody stays on top for long, except for the Patriots, um, which is even more credit to Belichick and Brady and their legacy. But... You know, it comes and goes, and Chiefs fans are finding that out, and Packers fans are terrified that they might find that out in a real way uh, after this season if Aaron Rodgers moves on because they got a glimpse of it and they did not like it. The only fix that I can think of for KC, because again, they're not seeing anything crazy. It's the exact same thing that happened at Dallas this week. It's it's that same cover one cross coverage which looks a lot like a poach adjustment in quarters where the entire point is to take away the deep cross from number three which is what they've been living off of with Tyreek Hill forever and ever and ever ever since Mahomes became starter that was like their go-to thing to do is we're going to get a one high coverage we're going to get the deep cross to Tyreek you know on the backside, uh Kelsey's going to have a one-on-one he'll just run whatever route he wants to if Tyreek gets doubled fine that that cover one cross coverage takes that away. And they don't have anything else. They don't have the run game. Like, they tried to run. Like, Darrell Williams got 19 carries for less than four yards a pop. Like, the one way to get out of this is they have to be able to run the ball, and they can't do it. It's wild. Like, I, it's the one way to punish what they're seeing and defenses know they can't do it, so they're sitting in the same thing every single game. Like I said, they're getting more quarters coverage than any other team in the league, which should just be a neon sign that says, please run the ball, and they can't do it. It's not even like they're not trying. They can't do it. 
No, this is where the two things play <laughs> off each other, right? When you've had, and you, you clearly identified, that was their can opener. That was their can opener play. Was we're gonna we're gonna free up Tyreek on the deep cross, and if you can't keep with him, we're gonna take huge chunks out of you, and you're gonna you're gonna fear that because we do it almost at will, like we do it when we want to, and their counter for that was not run, it was also pass, it was the backside route to Kelsey because Kelsey is uh, not one of one, but one of like three in the league in Ever. terms of tight end talent, yeah, and. So if I don't get that, which I get all the time with regularity, which should scare you deeply and does, I'm going to get this. And that's going to be my quote unquote check down, which half the time turned into 12 or 15 yards at a pop. So it was just first down, first down, first down, first down. And they just rolled teams with that. And then the reason they had effectiveness running the ball was because teams were so scared of that. Right. Teams had to double Tyreek and then find some kind of athlete to try and cover Kelsey, maybe double him. And that just left lots of gaps that weren't covered. And so the run game was, it was easy. It was candies from babies at that point. I mean, you, you have the field that wide open on both sides and, and defenders that are automatically on their heels rather than coming forward. Yeah. The run game is going to be easy. Now that's gone away, right? We got that solved. You're not hitting the other thing with regularity here we come. We're going to come down. We're going to creep. We're going to crowd. We're going to do all the things that you do. And KC goes, okay, well, we're not hitting the thing. We should run it. Look at that. Nine guys. Damn. Um, and they don't have the horses right now to run against loaded boxes. And they're seeing loaded boxes because defense isn't scared anymore. They're like, go ahead, throw it over my head. I dare you. You can't. You've proved it all season. And so these are the two things working together. It's the sort of chess match that makes football interesting between offenses and defenses and largely offenses among or amongst themselves is if you can't do that what are you going to do what's the counter punch and like not having the pass has made the run impossible um and yeah i'm with you they don't have an answer and there's no easy fix for that it's not like well <laughs> one and two and three didn't work so oh we've got four in our pocket and four is a silver bullet it'll get us out of all these tight games and the answer is no they don't have a four right now and they're not executing on top of that tackle play is a big part of that i think they're really missing mitchell schwartz like in in a big oh, yeah. way like, oh yeah they, everybody and weirdly that, eric fisher too like i didn't yeah. think that orlando brown was worse <laughs> than eric fisher but here we are yeah, Mitchell Schwartz was a was an engine of that offense in the fact that he was incredibly consistent. And he one-on-one could account for people like Vaughn Miller that they played twice a year. Mm-hmm. And you could legitimately leave Mitch on Vaughn Miller one-on-one and feel pretty good about the outcomes. He's going to lose a couple because Vaughn Miller's a great player too. But in general, he was going to handle him. And they don't have that now. And that means, again, you have to slide stuff from this side to this side. You have to account for that. And that means you don't have the extra guy in the run game or or the deep passing game for protection. Pat's getting hit now. It's just you, you pull one pin out and the house of cards has fallen a little bit. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough situation. So, I mean, we'll see if they come up with some sort of correction over the back half of the year. There's still a lot of games to play and... As we'll talk about in a little while here, they're still right there, you know, right there in the division because the AFC West is a complete clusterfuck. And then on the Packers side of things, yeah, you should probably extend Aaron Rodgers. I'll just say that. 
it's uh i think that became clear 18 months into that that was actually a good point i don't always agree with colin coward uh but he he made a good point of like look justin fields had that game against us it was like the tony stark thing like he built that suit in a cave with a box of scraps jordan love at 18 months in this system with one of the best offensive coaches in the league and the best receiver in the league and an offensive line that no matter who was being plugged in there was a dominant force. And you got a great running back in Aaron Jones and the defense is playing out of their mind. You had everything available to you. This team beat Arizona last week with like no receivers. You had everything. And you put up that kind of performance. That scares Packer fans. Yeah, and people, the apples to apples thing did bug me, right? Um, like people comparing Jordan Love and Justin Fields and saying they're the same in terms of their situation, not in terms of the player, not in terms of the skill set, not in terms of the physical ability, but in terms of we talk about situation all the time, that landing spot is important and, and the situation matters. Jordan Love's situation and Justin Fields' situation are not the same. <laughs> like, Really good offensive coach that's proved that in many circumstances with a lot of players over the past couple of years. Coach that has an offense that gets laughed off national broadcasts, right? That's that's an a offense big one. that's statistically worse than Mark Trestman's. Yeah, and last in the league, <laughs> like largely last in the league in points. And we talked about points when you games, not yards. Bears are last in points, fifteen point something a game. Um, not not great so there's the first difference the second difference is time and time does matter for quarterbacks we hear this hey they're going to need some time in the system they're going to need reps they're going to need plays they're going to need live looks they're going to need you know time with the playbook time with their teammates jordan loves had that like a lot of that justin fields has not he didn't even get reps with the ones in training camp right they insisted that dalton was a starter and justin fields got no reps basically he like a handful of reps in training camp with the ones and it was only after a good preseason performance and the loud call for hey maybe give him a shot with the best talent see what happens like these two situations the landing spot not the players the landing spots for those players the surrounding ecosystem you know infrastructure not the same for those two guys people are like well it's blah 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 the same level playing field and you're like it's so not like again you said you had everything Jordan Love's had everything. He's had Aaron Rodgers to watch. He's got Lafleur in his ear. He's got some tremendous offensive talent, a great offensive system. He had all that stuff. He had time. Against he, one of the worst defenses in the league, statistically. Right. Justin Fields, no time. Not a great offensive system. Not as much talent surrounding him on offense uh, against one of the best teams. In fact, go back and look at rookie quarterback success against the Steelers over Mike Tomlin's entire career. Ooh, it's got to be really bad. It's terrible. Like, nobody's ever thrown for 300 yards as a rookie quarterback <sighs> against Tomlin, ever. Wow, it just doesn't almost happen. almost like Belichickian. Yeah, no. It Rookie quarterbacks against Mike Tomlin, nothing. Like, nobody's ever cracked that. And here he goes on the road, hostile environment. Again, still not a great offensive game plan against a coach that's really good against rookie quarterbacks. And he almost literally wills them to a win. Jordan Love, all the other things stacked in his favor against one of the league's worst defenses this season, sputters. Like, and people said, oh, it's the same. And you're like, 
it's it's really not the same. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, extend Aaron. Like he's, I question. If you're a Packers fan, all, you should. I, want I question all of his life else. choices. Like, yeah. don't get me like Aaron on the field, Aaron off the field. Two very different opinions. Um, you have to extend him. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. sorry. We're we're at we're at that point now where it's like, I don't give a fuck what you're trading love for. Get him out of the building. Give Aaron what he wants. He could play till he's 47. I don't care. You need to. It's if you're mm. if you're a Packers fan, that's all you want for Christmas is some sort of sanity around the fact that we've seen the other side. We want no part of it. What do you need, Aaron? Like again, we're we're not wild about you off the field. We're gonna roll our eyes as the head coach in your press conference when they ask me if I'm gonna watch your video. I'm gonna say, not. I don't think I am. <laughs> uh, you know, but on the field, I'm gonna roll my eyes at what you can do. And as a football fan, if you're a Packers fan, that's all you want right now because the other side is uncertain, regardless of love or anybody else. Getting a quarterback, just just look at your friends in Chicago, your friends in Chicago. It is very hard to get a quarterback. They have not been able to do it for decades. When you get one that plays well, you keep them. The Bears have got theirs, they're gonna keep them. You've got Bro. yours. You, Even you the Vikings are like holding on to Kirk Cousins with a fucking death grip because he's still better than what they had before. And that's Kirk Cousins. Yeah. Like, yeah, reality is going to You don't it. want this life, man. You don't want it. It's bad <laughs> out here. You don't want the smoke. <laughs> you don't want it. No, it's true. They don't. And we'll see what happens. It's going to be a fascinating storyline. But who's got the leverage in that situation again? Don't, don't tell me Goody's got the leverage in that situation. It, uh oh, Aaron Rodgers Mm-mm. has every card in his hand, and all he has to do is go. You want to rewatch the Kansas City tape with me? Let's <laughs> let's sit down and watch it together, shall we? Okay. Uh, let's get to three interesting number one here, which is Lamar Jackson setting even more records on Sunday. Feels like he does this every single week. Speaking of the Vikings, I want to I want to list off a bunch of records that he topped. What is he fourth year starting? Not even 18, 19, 20. Okay, fourth year starting. Yeah. Fourth year starting. First quarterback in NFL history to record multiple games with three passing touchdowns and at least 100 yards rushing. Tied Cam Newton is the only quarterback in league history to have at least 500 rushing yards in their first four seasons. 22nd career 75-yard rushing game, most in NFL history, already surpassing Michael Vick. Again, four years. Absolutely insane. Third career game with at least 250 passing yards and 100 rushing yards, which ties Newton for most in NFL history. Four years. I feel like I need to keep emphasizing that. Ninth career game with at least 200 passing yards and 75 rushing yards, which ties Russell Wilson for most in NFL history, and Russ has been around for a decade. Fifteenth straight game with a touchdown pass ties the franchise record that he set in 2019 and 2020, which was his MVP year. 12th straight win versus NFC teams, which ties Kenny Stabler for the most consecutive wins by a quarterback versus the NFC to begin a career. Never lost versus that conference. This dude is like, I'm, I'm running out of superlatives. He's one of the best quarterbacks that I've ever had the honor of seeing with my own naked eyeballs. I saw him as a rookie down in Atlanta. I saw him just this season with you in Vegas. Still the fastest human being on the field, by the way. 
he is something so beyond special. And we talk about how like Mahomes is, you know, on the baby goat path and he, he would already qualify as a Hall of Famer and he's for sure on the Canton path and everything like that. Lamar is setting every every single record you can think of every single week. He's already got an MVP in his first four years. He put to bed that narrative of like, oh, we can't play from behind. They have three games this year already where they were down two possessions and one. I think they might have more wins that way than than being in the lead, to be honest. Every single narrative has been crushed. Every single record is about to be crushed. If this dude's not on a Hall of Fame track already in his first four years, I don't know who is. Like, this is one of the most special quarterbacks, special football players, period, that we have seen in a generation, and it's about damn time we start acting like it. Yeah, you know I hate cigars, but uh, if I liked cigars, this is where I would light up the fattest one I had. (laughs) Because coming out of Louisville, I started carrying the torch. Like, when you watched his game at Louisville, and this is the reason I got into analyzing draft picks in the first place, is because I saw people saying stuff, and at the time, they were talking about 12, 13 years ago, I'd filed the draft, but I didn't have enough knowledge to say, I th- you're wrong, right? But I th- thought you were wrong. So I started looking into individual cases when somebody said, oh, this guy can rush the passer or this guy can't throw or whatever it was. I started looking into these individual cases, and that's how I started building my knowledge about the draft. And over time, a decade of doing that, you start to see the same patterns emerge. And there were a lot of those patterns when Lamar was at Louisville. And they said, he can't do this. And I was almost a decade into it when Lamar came out of Louisville. I was about nine years into it with with some rigor at that point. And I was clearly like, uh-uh, not this time. Like, <laughs> you don't get to pull that wool over my eyes. A decade ago, I might have said, wow, you've been around a long time. You're right. And now I'm going to say, no, you're wrong, and here's why, and let me show you the ways, right? Because Lamar showed you the ways. All you had to do was watch. This isn't anything about me as a great evaluator. This is about seeing what's on film and being objective about it. And Lamar was objectively a very good prospect at Louisville, and that is not the quarterback that he's become in the pros, It's lesser than that. He has continued to develop from that very good foundation to what we're seeing now, which is greatness defined. Like you can define greatness by numbers. You can define greatness in a lot of ways. And you said it, every narrative that's been put up about him, many of which were false, like flatly false to begin with. Like you don't have any evidence for that. That's just something you're saying. As opposed to the ones that were a little bit more questionable. And you could lean on statistics the very same way we have here and say, well, he's never won the big one. Right. Well, now he has. So <laughs> now people you know, are judging him by like, well, how many Super Bowls has he won? It's like, motherfucker, he's been in the league four years. And he's already want? been MVP. People <laughs> seem to forget that. Like that's I think that's the most forgotten MVP. Like yeah. two years later, people are like, what? No, he didn't. And you're like, no, he actually did. It's a fact. It's on the books. So. This is where I kind of let up the cigar and went, nope, I, you know, and I know there are several, many, probably other media members who I respect, who I have receipts on that are good receipts. They have carried the Lamar flag since Louisville and said, no, no, you're wrong. 
he can do this, he can do that, he can do this, and he's going to be a really good pro quarterback, right? And I said, shout the out same to Trevor thing. Sikama, by the way. Sikama, I think, was one of them. Sikama's one of them. Doug Farrar is absolutely a Lamar yeah. supporter and has been a an ardent Lamar supporter since his time at Louisville. So shout out to him as well. I think anybody that pays attention to tape and not narrative was at least okay with the idea that Lamar had a, a pretty good chance to be a very good NFL quarterback, at least a mid-level functional one. And again, we've said that earlier in this program, we said it. it's very hard to find even that. Like, it's damn near impossible. Franchises spend millions of dollars every year if they don't have one, and they still fail over and over again. So knowing that he was at least that threshold, it is not a backhanded compliment. That is a straight-up compliment. If you can be a top-half quarterback in the NFL, that is a you know that is a one of fifteen on the planet position. Um, it's it's not an easy thing to do, and Lamar has done it, done it well, done it against all those voices. The voices haven't quieted, and I've had so many arguments about this guy. Like I remember his second year in the league, sitting with a guy at a bar. This is pre-COVID. Right. And he was like, Lamar's a runner. And I was like, well, I've had a beer, so we're going to have a talk about this. Right. You're wrong. And here's why. And what the guy couldn't say is what we said a few weeks ago, which is just say you don't like Lamar Jackson for whatever reason. Not going to put that label on you. Just say you don't like him. Right. Don't say he can't throw. He can. Don't say he can't lead a team to victory. He can. Right. Don't don't say what it's not. It's just like the roughing the passer rule, like call it whatever it is and then call it equally. And if you don't like Lamar Jackson, just say, I don't like Lamar Jackson, like as a person, for whatever reason. Don't say he's not a good quarterback. Don't say he should have played running back. Don't say any of that stuff anymore, because you're on the wrong side of history here. The, the evidence is amazing already within four seasons and it's just mounting like it's just stacking up at an obscene level like this is an absurd amount of achievement for a player in his first four years in the nfl like ridiculous so you look sillier and sillier when you say i don't think he's a good nfl player you're like well then you don't know what one looks like i couldn't have said it better myself uh three interesting number two uh, the NFC South is maybe good. <laughs> it's It's been one of the <laughs> weirdest divisions. Like, it, it, I mean, after two weeks in the NFL, if you said halfway through the season, the NFC South was going to have three teams slated to make the playoffs, I would have said you were out of your mind. Well... Maybe not true because I would have believed that the Bucks would have been, or the not the Bucks, the Panthers would have been that third team. But if you told me that the Falcons would be a seven seed and the Saints with Trevor Simeon at quarterback would be the sixth seed, and that the Bucks would be the three seed, I would have, I would have said you're nuts. Like this was not a division that was supposed to have three playoff teams and another that's right outside the bubble because the Panthers are four and five. Like I know they just got crushed. Darnold's hurt, blah, you know, whatever. Like the Panthers are still closer to it than the Vikings who are three and five. They're closer than the Seahawks who are three and five. They're closer than the Niners who are three and five. They're closer than the Bears who are three and five. Like it's, it's kind of nuts how not terrible the NFC South has been this year in a season that we kind of expected it to be a rebuilding division. 
Drew Brees retires. There was uncertainty around Jameis and Taysom and what would happen there. Michael Thomas was hurt. And, you know, can the defense carry the day for them yet again? Um, You know, the Falcons, you got first-year head coach, kind of an elderly Matt Ryan. Julio's gone. The offense is going to be leaning on Kyle Pitts because, at least going into the year, we didn't really see where their run game was going to come from. Lo and behold, Cordero Patterson is apparently a demigod of football. And then you got the Panthers who started out 3-0 and then completely collapsed. Like, it's a really weird division, but halfway through the year, they're on pace for three playoff teams. I don't have an explanation for it, but I'm happy for the Falcons that, again, rookie head coach, elderly quarterback, Calvin Ridley steps away from the game, Julio's gone, you've got a rookie tight end as your main offensive weapon, and a 30-year-old Cordero Patterson, and you're the seventh seed, baby. That's insane. Good for them. Yeah, and Matt Ryan played the lights out on Sunday. It's 23 of 30 for over 300 yards, bunch of touchdowns, looked like the Matty Ice, I don't want to say of old, because the Matty Ice that has continued to show up, pop up in games every season, it's never like he had a, you know, he had four years in the wilderness where he was terrible and now he's good. Like, he has these games and he has a talent in him every game to do that and he did it on Sunday, like he looked absolutely on point and if he continues to play that way he's obviously playing with growing confidence within arthur smith's system getting to know his new (laughs) newly remodeled wide receiver core um and the the other thing is if you told me that atlanta was one of those teams and calvin ridley hadn't played a prominent role after they traded away julio jones and they were still going to be in that position i would have been like yeah right on what planet and you told me that Cordell Patterson was taking a, a decent amount of those targets. I would have been like, <laughs> I'm not sure we're talking about the same guys. Uh, but big credit to the Falcons. Uh, again, a lot of people, when they extended Matt Ryan and basically made him a fixture on the Falcons for the next couple of years, he's untradeable off the Falcons for the next couple of years just because of the money hit. Um you know, a lot of people kind of went, I don't know, is it the end? Like, we should have should have grabbed the rookie and developed him and whatever. Mm. <laughs> Matt kind of put that narrative to bed, and we said it earlier. If you have a good quarterback, and Matt Ryan is absolutely a good quarterback, a top half of the NFL quarterback, you keep them, and you give them every chance to succeed. And Arthur Smith has found some very creative ways to help Matt Ryan succeed, and the Falcons are reaping the benefits. They're 500. They're, you know, if the season ended today, they'd be in the playoffs and they look like they're ascending, right? As opposed to the Panthers who started off hot and are descending. Um, the Falcons are going the other way, and that's the right way to be going at this time of the year. So it's going to be really interesting to watch that entire division down the stretch. Uh, but low-key, I'm kind of keying into Falcons games every week. Like, what are they doing this week? Like, are they going to keep building on this? This is a it's a fun team to watch. And, and as a fan of the Falcons, that's what you should be rooting for. And you're getting it. Three interesting number three, speaking of crazy, you know, playoff battles going into mid-November. The AFC North and AFC West are in a dead heat, not between three, but between all four teams (laughs) in each division. Every AFC North team has either five or six wins. Baltimore's only up by a game, and they're six and two, and they're only up by a game on the rest of the division combined. (laughs) 
And then every single AFC West team has five wins. All of them have five wins. Chiefs and Broncos are only a half game back because they're five and four because bye weeks. Chargers and Raiders are five and three. It's just two insanely close divisions. And if you told me to pick who's going to win each one right now, like as much as I love Lamar Jackson, like the, the Browns still have five wins and they've been beat up the entire year. Like at one point, both their tackles were hurt and Chubb was down and Hunt was down and, uh, you know, Baker's got a broken shoulder and like they've sustained so many injuries and they still got five wins. Like I can't completely rule out the Browns winning it. I can't rule out the Bengals winning it. They were the first seed in the conference last week. (laughs) They just beat the brakes off Baltimore, even though they just lost two straight. I I don't know who's going to win this division. I don't know who's going to win the West either. Like the Chiefs were the default answer, but we already went over their problems and the Chargers are randomly getting blown out and then randomly blowing out other teams. And I mean, the Raiders are the Raiders. You never know what you're going to get with them. And then the Broncos just beat beat Dallas, who was like consensus top five team in the league. I have nothing. I can't analyze either one of these divisions because I I, I, I just don't know. I can't figure them out. All I know is none of them are bad. They're all good. They're all just going to keep ripping wins off of each other. And they're all probably going to keep each other from getting top seed in the conference because the Titans get to beat up on the rest of the AFC South and they're top seed right now. While AFC North, AFC West, and to a degree AFC East, because again, the Patriots and the Bills are neck and neck, they're all going to beat each other up. Whereas the Titans get to get wins against Jacksonville and Houston and their, you know, Indy is probably their closest competition. Like it almost kind of feels like how, uh, how it felt like with the Patriots for a while where it's like, yeah, the Patriots get a whole bunch of wins in the AFC East. And then, you know, everybody in the AFC North gets to beat each other up. Yeah. Same kind of scenario. It's just different conference this time. Uh, all I know is AFC North, AFC West, two incredibly competitive divisions. I can't, I can't bet who's going to win. It's way too close. I wouldn't bet with my money. Um, The good (laughs) news is we were right. In our divisional previews, these were two of the divisions that we called out as overly talented, kind of overall. We looked at all eight divisions and we said, hey, what's the sort of class of the NFL right now in terms of divisions? These were two divisions that we called out as full of tough teams. Now, we wrote off the Bengals a little bit, uh, but AFC West was one of those that we looked at and said, man, any of these teams have a shot and AFC North three of these teams have a legitimate shot and it turns out it's four. So the good news is we were right. We weren't far off on, on the divisional power um, going into it, but it is a really interesting dynamic that if you play in a tough division, if you play in a balanced division, I love the phrase ripping wins off each other because that's what has to happen. You play each of those teams two times and Teams and divisions that don't have stacked opponents are going to get a little bit easier road, even if they're not overall as good a team. Now there's coaches that will tell you that that battle hardens you for the playoffs and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's still tough. Like, it is an absolute street fight. We've seen that in the AFC North for several years now, where those divisional games have been more than several years. The last five to ten years, those divisional games have been rough like Brown Steelers game, Bengal Steelers games, yeah. like th- those games are rough. I mean, uh, NFC North has been known as the black and blue division. Eh, it's really the AFC North. Like those teams beat the hell out of each other all year. And 
it's going to be fascinating football. And we're going to see more lead changes in this division because they're all like one game apart. So a couple game losing yeah. streak and somebody else splits, they're going to go up two spots in their division because it is so tight neck and neck. It's really going to come down to how they played head to head. Um, you mentioned the Chargers, and the Chargers, I think, are, are fascinating because they're the most high-variance team in the league, in my opinion. They come out. Oh, I can't figure them out at all. Yeah, they come out and <laughs> look not great at all against lesser competition, then come out against top competition and blow their doors off. And the one thing I will say about them that's really refreshing that we hoped for, that we are seeing um, – uh, is that Staley has created a team that doesn't lose games that the Chargers usually have lost. <laughs> and I mean usually like over the past 10 years to the point where chargering became a verb. Um, they seem to be getting away from that. When they were in, the, they had one this weekend. They got in a close game. Those are the kind of games that the Chargers typically would have folded in. They didn't. They won the game. So... it's cool to see that development but again are you going to ask me to lay down my hard-earned cash on them as a division winner oh i'd rather buy groceries thanks like nah i can't i can't (laughs) say that but it's going to be really fun to watch all these teams all eight of these teams in this stretch run down the playoffs because we're going to see continued movement within their divisions we're going to see a ton of back and forth probably going to see a lot of good football and some inexplicable things as well but that's entertainment, and these divisions are, I think we were right there, they're, they're the class of the NFL in terms of balance. Which, I mean, at least makes it entertaining for for neutral fans like ourselves because, I mean, we're getting Raiders-Chiefs this week in primetime. I think it's a Sunday night game out in Vegas. And again, you tell me what's going to happen in that game. It's, it's one of the games on our watch list I, because, ooh. like, the Chiefs could show up, the Raiders could blow their doors off. The Raiders could falter. Uh, you know, that we could have a sort of uh, Bills-Jags game where it was like 10-7, to 7, which uh, we were all predicting before the year. Mm-hmm. That Chiefs, Chiefs Ra- are favored? I just looked at the line right now. They're f- it's I, minus two and a half for Kansas City. I, but, uh, you know, under a field goal, which means we don't know. Anything under three points means it's a toss-up. And I think that's what we're yeah, saying. Yeah, but you're, you're spotting three for the home team, so they're I, that, which is typical, right? Not you're not going to favor road teams in a game that you think is going to be close. And we're saying the same thing. We don't know what's going to happen here. And when Vegas Vegas's version of we don't know what's going to happen here is a line under three uh, shade the home team because it's the home team. Like that means we don't know either. Right. Well, that's the thing is Kansas City's the road team and they're favored. Oh, which I'm like, okay. so I'm like, no way. <laughs> yeah, I, that seems odd. I thought they were playing in Kansas City. My bad. Yeah. So I. Yeah. That's, that's all I got. <laughs> uh, let's get to the bootleg shot of the week. This week, uh, you know, I tend to, to stick to the border states when we do shot of the week. So I got my my pendle to midnight. What I have left of it. A very, very smooth, sweet Canadian whiskey. Uh, And our winner from last week that we are toasting is none other than the elder statesman, Jason Peters himself, uh, becoming a human brick wall to Fred Warner on that spectacular touchdown run from Justin Fields. Uh, Poor Fred Warner. Got to keep your head in a swivel because when you have a 330-pound man who would love nothing more than to take your head off, 
in the open field. He's going to do it. So a toast to you, Jason Peters, for protecting your quarterback and uh, giving us one hell of a highlight. God damn, I love you, Canada. Uh, just for Canada, giving me that. Canada makes excellent things, as does... This is just the NAFTA version of bootleg, because uh, this week for me it was Terramana, which mm. is the people's tequila uh, made by The Rock. Um, and man, you throw an ice cube in that, let it get cool. Just a beautiful shot. I don't Got normally some... like celebrity alcohols, by the way. Me neither. That's one of the few that's doable for me. Honestly... I had no idea he had anything to do with it. In fact, I found it out the first time I had it on bootleg because I had it in a restaurant. I saw it on a tequila list, and I was like, what is this? Talked to the server about it. She didn't say anything about Dwayne Johnson, and she said, yeah, we we all really like it. Um, it's great by itself. It's great, you know, in margaritas, whatever. And I just ordered a shot of it. And, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of relevancy of place. Had a great meal to go with it, and that probably influenced it, but, like, really really good tequila was surprised by it came home bought it and was looking at the bottle before uh the first time i had it on the show and sure enough yes indeed um put together by dwayne the rock johnson but really good tequila if you get the shot so terramana great stuff our uh our first nominee for this week bootleg favorite i feel like we've been waiting for this for like a solid year and a half eno benjamin out of the arizona state university has been buried on the depth chart in Arizona forever. Chase Edmonds got hurt earlier in the game, unfortunately for him. So Eno was the relief back for James Conner. Got like eight or nine carries. And he had a whale of a touchdown run. Just ran over a corner on the edge. I mean, I'm talking lower the shoulder. It just take a soul. It was beautiful. <laughs> One of my favorite touchdown runs of the entire year, just for the, the sheer physicality of it. And Edo's not even that big of a dude, but just seeing him run with that kind of physicality, I love it, man. Classic shot of the week material. Yeah, we have been waiting for Eno, and uh, a fan reached out to me and said, oh, yeah, he was my running back five that year because we loved Eno Benjamin. Eno was the guy that later down the board we both felt like was not getting the appreciation for his talent. Um, that we clearly saw on film. I It took me a couple of days, but I got back to the fan. I, I went and looked. He was my RB6. Uh, I had a tier. Uh, this is the year that Dobbins and Swift and Cam Akers and all the other guys, they were all in my top five, my first bubble or tier. Um, I had Zach Moss out of Utah, who's a Bills back now, uh, followed by Eno Benjamin as uh, – sorry six and seven so the top five was my first pod and then moss and benjamin led off my second pod and and that was a lot higher than you saw him ranked and certainly more highly than he was drafted he's got great talent and it was really fun to see him get his shot and again he's a bit of a do-it-all back he's not small in speed he's not just pass catching he's not between the tackles he's not outside the tackles he's shown all those abilities and to see him flat out run over a guy not what I would have called the strongest facet of his game, but it looked pretty damn strong on Sunday. Uh, option number two, speaking of grown man runs, Javante Williams, another bootleg favorite. I can't remember if we had him on 10 gems, did we? We I, might have had him on, on offensive gems. I didn't have him on 10 gems, not because, I don't think I did, because he just felt too chalk to me. He was my, far, not far and away, he was my clear RB1 
in this class. And a lot of people said Najee. And I was like, look, Najee's 1A for me. And Najee's a very good running back. When you're talking about that level of talent, it's not that one was head and shoulders of another. But as a pure runner, Javante Williams is the best pure runner in this class. And we've got a really fun stat about that um, <laughs> in terms of broken tackles. So he and uh, another of my favorites that you'll know if you listen to the show, Nick Chubb, are the leaders. They are tied for missed tackles um, forced so far. The number of carries overall that Nick Chubb has is 120. The number of carries that Javante Williams has is 95. So in the Just exact, insane. So in literally one-third of all Javante Williams' runs, he is forcing a missed tackle. 35 out of 95 he has forced a missed tackle on. He is a tremendous runner. Uh, people said in our divisional preview episode, when I said he is the number one back in Denver, people were, what about Melvin Gordon? Melvin Gordon had a great game against the Cowboys on Sunday. He is, he has rebounded. He was a great talent, had a couple of down years. He is running hard again. He is running well. And I would still run Javante Williams with starter reps above Melvin Gordon because he is a force. He is tremendously talented. And if you're watching the YouTube version of the show, we've, we've had the, the grown man run that's the nominee this week where he broke two tackles on one run at the same time. He had Trayvon Diggs on him and uh, a defensive tackle who I didn't catch the number four and literally just ran through both of them. And then it took the third guy, third guy excuse me, to get him down. So like that's that's where that missed tackle rate comes from where it's like it's never the first guy that gets him. It's always the second or the third or the fourth that has to get him on the ground. And it was, it was the same thing in North Carolina. Like, he set records for broken tackle rate, and he didn't even get all the carries because he was splitting with Michael Carter. His, just, his contact balance, his physicality, everything, he's a special, special, special player. And uh, this is, I think, the second or third time he's been nominated for Shot of the Week just for beating the shit out of defenses with pure physicality uh option number three we have uh dante dayon blowing up a shield screen from the titans it's kind of an interesting design because it was from empty and it was like a four by one look and then he kind of read the little little short motion was like well this looks rather obvious and he just pulled the trigger on it and just beat the block before the block had even set up and laid a vicious hit on it but it was a great read great play form tackle all the physicality you look for yeah this guy's getting a lot of playing time now uh in the rams rotation uh came up midseason and he is mouthy if you like mouthy corners <laughs> he will let you know and this is a tremendous play what we call click and close right he gets it he triggers he is by the block before the blocker can really get a piece of him and when he gets there he delivers he stops the receiver dead zero yards Obviously gets up and lets him know about it, but he had a very good game on Sunday. This wasn't the only play he made. Um, so big talker, but backs it up. Um, great, great play by him. And then our final option for the week. This one was my favorite, personally. Maybe I'm a little <laughs> bit biased. Yeah, a little. Uh, yeah, Troy Reader. There's, there's hits, and then there's complete destruction of, of a human body. And I don't know why Ryan Tannehill decided to throw this ball. It's the definition of a hospital ball. He didn't launch. He didn't hit the head or neck area. He hit the midsection. 
and it was like a almost like a Johnny Knox folded in half type hit, except in midair. And Chester Rogers, I mean, God bless him. It took him a while to get up. I have to imagine it knocked the wind out of him. This, to me, was the most vicious, legal, like perfectly fine hit of the week that still, like, you can't you can't look at it without just going, oh, my God, how did he survive that? No, Ben Chester Rogers into the shape of a C in midair, which <laughs> sideways is not a way that a body likes to bend. And when I was watching this one in real time, I was like, first thing I said was, oh, my God, that's the shot of the week. Second thing I said was, if he gets up, right? (laughs) Because we don't nominate hits for injuries. We don't nominate hits that are flagged. And we don't nominate hits that, you know, cause concussions. And I thought, if he stands up and walks off to the sideline under his own power, that's the shot of the week. Because it was not flagged again. And, oh, yeah, you can't watch this one and not cringe. It is a physical game, even when played correctly and legally. But the first thing I said is, oh, it's a shot of the week. And I quickly said, <laughs> if he gets up, because, and it took him a second. He's on his hands and knees for a second, but he did get up under his own power, walked off, played played later in the game. But he was feeling that one. NFL players will never tell you. It's their least favorite question. Like, who hit you the hardest in your career? Who laid the, the vis- most vicious shot on you? And, they asked Joe Burrow that uh, last year, and he was like, I'm not telling you. Like, I'm not I mean, giving them the satisfaction. Like, no. He's just he's sleeping in the cold tub that night. He's oh, going yeah. to the acupuncturist. He's going to the chiropractor every day. He's dialing up a hyperbaric chamber for his bedroom <laughs> because, yeah, it's just that that's punishment. But completely legal hit. Everybody got up and walked away. But it is that's a hardcore NFL hit. Our Week 10 watch list, final segment of the show. These are the games that we're looking most forward to watching. can't believe we're in Week 10 already, by the way. My God. Uh, Saints-Titans, which before the season, this was like one of those, like, eh, it could be fun, but maybe sure. there won't be like major playoff implications. And now it's like, no, these are two playoff teams that are going at it that despite all of their injuries are still somehow scrapping out, you know, good seasons. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, the Saints are, I think, a six seed right now. Titans are a one seed, despite the Derrick Henry, Henry injury, despite the Jameis Winston injury and the Michael Thomas injury. Like, it's just two very well-coached, very scrappy physical teams. Don't expect it to be the highest-scoring game of the week at all because both defenses are playing very well. But, again, I think it's going to be at least entertaining for a neutral like me. Uh, you got Falcons-Cowboys. Falcons are a, a scrappy upstart, again, somehow winning games despite all their injuries and you got the Cowboys coming off a rather embarrassing loss um I'm very intrigued to see how Dallas responds how Dak responds you know hopefully their their corners can stop the bleeding and giving up so many damn yards but again we'll see and then you got Chiefs Raiders in the AFC West which as we mentioned before is in a complete deadlock right now so we'll see how that goes in prime time and then we got a bonus game to watch and this kind of an asterisk because it, it depends on if the starting quarterbacks play. We could get Jordan Love versus Geno Smith, or we could get Russell Wilson versus Aaron Rodgers. And I think the game's watchability level is vastly different depending on who we're getting here. So uh, I guess we'll we'll see Saturday what we're going to get. But fingers crossed we get Russell Wilson versus Aaron Rodgers because I think that would be a much more watchable football game. Can we get a little bone marrow off Russell Wilson? 
because... Okay, we need to talk about how does he heal yeah. this quickly all the time? Yeah, even at a somewhat advanced age, and I don't mean overall in his life, I mean for the NFL, he's been around a while. He's taken a lot of hits. He's taken a lot of punishment. Guys typically slow down in how quickly they heal, especially for major injuries that tend to happen later in their career. So uh, the original timeline for Russell Wilson was about four weeks longer than this. Almost another month was the projection um, based on the initial diagnosis and the surgery. Uh, he again, uh, ruptured a tendon in his finger. Uh, the surgeon, uh, took the pin out, uh, like four days ago now, five days ago, um, and cleared him yesterday. So he is legit green to start playing in this game. And it is, uh, it kind of reminds me of like the AP, um, Adrian Peterson ACL thing where he was legit back in like what six and a half months and then led the league in rushing from that point on like hgh is a hell of a drug man i you know whatever it is i would like some because (laughs) there are mornings i roll out of bed and think "Ah, i'm not sure i could do this today and that's not an nfl game like my days are not that rugged um but no again this is a totally different game if it is rogers clear of covid protocol and russell wilson clear of the injury to his finger versus geno smith who has rebounded and played pretty well jordan love who has not um it's gonna be a really interesting game it is in lambo uh so that's a little bit of a thing but the starting quarterbacks really sort of make or break this one so uh sign me up for not probably watching it right off or at least in the first round if it's geno versus jordan um at the packers house if it's russell wilson and aaron Rodgers in lambeau that's appointment viewing i'm i'm gonna watch that game yeah nobody's betting on this game till like saturday at 10 o'clock at night (laughs) (laughs) yeah true story uh, before we get out of here, what do you got coming up on Bears Over Beers, if anything at all? Nothing! <laughs> and I'm so excited about that. So we're going into the Bears bye week. Uh, JB, my co-host, and I, we're going to do a concept show really focused on beer, not on the Bears. We were all excited about it. And we're both worked. Uh, it's a lot of work keeping up with the season. He has many other things going on as well. We both decided, nope, a week off sounds great. So I do not have to film or i do not have to film bears over beers this week which i am excited about i love working with jb but a little bit of rest uh chance to recharge and work on some other projects would be great um but you've got a film room close on the heels or actually it'll come out before this one does uh no i think the pod's coming out before because i think okay cool this is coming out wednesday and film room on dax weird misadventures for denver is coming out thursday if i recall correctly Definitely by Thursday at the latest, I would say. So still got that coming out. And then uh, f- for once, I'm getting everything out on time in, in a week. It's, it's a weird you? feeling. It's, a, it's amazing what happens when I'm not traveling across the country to go to NFL games. I actually get my work done on time. Who knows? Amazing. Well, we have something to give away. Before we thank our executive producers, we said last week that we were going to tease giveaway, that we were going to do our first bootleg giveaway for our Patreon subscribers. Uh, and we decided that a hoodie was the deal it's the one brett's wearing it's the bootleg football hoodie uh and so we took all of our patrons we organized them by join date we took a nice random number generator and then just to add a little bit more randomness i let brett pick top or bottom decide whether we were counting from the top or counting from the bottom on the random number uh and the result of that is drum roll please i'll wait for you to put that in in video 
Andrew Fitzpatrick is our There we winner. go. So, Andrew, thank you so much for your support, and we will be reaching out in the next couple of days for shipping options. Get you a bootleg hoodie in the mail and on the way so you can rep the brand. Uh, really appreciate that. And I really sh- hope you don't live in, like, Latvia or some <laughs> shit. Because <laughs> it'll be, like, $55 to send you a $50 hoodie, but we're going to do it. Uh, we're going to we'll do, do it, it either way. We appreciate your support no matter where you are in the world. But, yeah, shipping to Europe is a bear, but we will do it. Um, and we want to thank our executive producers as well. Murat and Consti, uh, both supporting us at the top level. Can't thank them enough. Uh, they help make all this content possible. So thanks to everybody who has joined into Patreon. If you have not and you're interested, go to patreon.com. Look up Bootleg Football. You can find us there. Um, and that is a wrap to what was a really wild week in the NFL. There was a lot of things that uh, nobody would have imagined happening that happened. Uh, and it's fun to be able to bring it to you all every week. So we'll be back here next Wednesday with our Week 10 recap, praying that it's as good as Week 9 was, or at least as interesting as Week 9 was. And uh, until then, we'll see you guys later. See you next Wednesday.